Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Expeditors Podcast, where you can hear about front of mind topics in the logistics and freight forwarding industry through the lens of a global logistics provider. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and today we're taking a quick break from our series on the visibility economy to dive back into the shipping crisis with a particular focus on global customs. As ships are backed up, What's going on behind the scenes to clear those shipments? How are trade agreements and customs processes changing between countries? And ultimately, why should you care? To lay it all out is our Senior Vice President of Global Customs, Dana Lorenz. Dana, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Chris, and hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, Let's get a little background on you first before we kind of dive into today's topic. Uh, Could you walk me through your career here at Expeditors and your time before Expeditors um, and how you fell into customs or not fell into customs, how you pursued and 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 plowed the way towards customs? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Sure. Uh, I I started out a long, long time ago because I'm ancient now. But uh, when I (laughs) when I graduated from college, they didn't even have international supply chain degrees. I did graduate. with a degree in international business with Mm -hmm. a minor in poli sci. So I was always kind of interested in the world of international trade. And uh, a college professor actually said to me, if you want to learn international trade in its raw form, work for a customs broker and then get out. That was his advice. (laughs) I obviously listened to part of that. Uh, I started a long, long time ago, fresh out of college as a broker uh, just doing entries. And then I got into uh, the other aspects of our business and worked for uh, a large freight forwarding company. And then I joined Expeditors in 1995. Uh, mm-hmm. And I joined actually in, in a sales function. Um, and then uh, I I had spent a pretty significant portion of my time doing route development between countries um, and, and various countries, actually, not just in Europe and the US, but Asia as well. And um, I started broadening my horizon and what my view was of the world Mm -hmm. uh, back as a a, a fairly young person in sales. Then I had the opportunity for management and I um, came back into the customs role uh, as the brokerage manager and then import manager. uh, And then through there uh, in Los Angeles, actually, it happened to be a a very large uh, import operation. Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to run a couple of offices and I, I was a district manager for two different offices for seven years. And then I've been in the corporate uh, global customs role, took on the director of global customs. Uh, really, it was 11 years ago now. I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, or to, uh, going on 11 years, I should say. So I've been at the company total of about, it's coming up on 27. Wow. Um, and I've now uh, been responsible for the global customs product uh, since 2016. So the company has taken on a, a lot of um, interest in global customs and the world has actually demanded that as well. There's lots mm-hmm. of stuff going on, but the, the principles apply and now it's definitely global scale. So that's sort of the story of my life and why I'm still interested in global trade. You know, I've been with Expeditors for almost 10 years now and oh my gosh, it's yeah, that, that went by real fast. And, you know, through my time, you know, I've always keep hearing how much of a special history we have with customs. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so back in the day, uh, there were logistics, there were freight forwarders, and there were cargo movement companies, and then there were customs brokers, and they were not the same company. Right. So when uh, Expeditors uh, established operations, you know, 1979 and went public after that, um, it was revolutionary to combine as an air freight forwarder who also offered customs brokerage services. And uh, it wasn't by accident, it was by plan, and it continues to be by plan because there's a whole lot of value that comes from the customs, um, understanding customs. 
and uh, the roots of our company are heavily ingrained in that. Um, and you know, most of our executive team are licensed brokers. It's just deep, deep, deep in our core. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about today because there is a lot to cover uh, for this topic. Um, you know, headlines that I'm seeing are full of talk about capacity shortages and and the global shipping crisis. What's going on in the world of customs? I don't see a lot of headlines as it relates to customs. Not at this moment. <laughs> yeah, right. It's coming. <laughs> not, not at this moment. I, I think you do see them. You just don't realize they're tied to customs, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's part of why I I, I preach. <laughs> <laughs> While you're busy with all your supply chain concerns, customs is part of the supply chain. It's not mm. you know, contrary to the supply chain. The, you know, obviously going back several years, the trade wars have been in the news, right? And and even still, you see all these trade actions, you know, and we're, we'll talk about that. These headlines are not so bold anymore, only focused on trade wars, which was mm-hmm. about tariffs increasing duty payments and tax specifically. But a lot of these things are still happening and not behind the scenes. They're just not the thing that's causing people the most amount of pain. Right. So, um, these things went on before. They were in the headlines. They're still kind of in the headlines, but in different forms. Mm. And they have the, the same impact. It's taking people away from, hey, while you're still doing this, be aware that all this other activity is still going on that you should be aware of and you should plan for. And not in the future, you should be doing things about it now. And what's going on in 2021 is uh, actually not just started at the January mark, although some things that I'll talk about, obviously, sure. are. Um, some of this stuff was, you know, actually happening before um, in the pre-pandemic environment during the pandemic. But what's going on in terms of the things that we're currently talking about kind of relate to four major topics. Sure, um, sure. There's a lot of pressures going on in this current world, in this current year. And, um, you know, the first topic would relate to complexity, and I'll, I'll go into that in, in a minute. The, the second topic is geopolitical and environmental issues. The third is on the security initiative side, and uh, not, not necessarily all, some, a lot of these things are not necessarily bad, but what was like tariff and trade wars resulting in maybe security concerns now, where, mm-hmm. you know, so, so um, the, it's, it's not separate it's actually tied to and more an iterative um, event of what was happening before. And and the security concerns are growing and and they're interrelated. And then innovation is the fourth pressure, which I know a lot of people think, why would that be pressure? It's just, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually the panacea. Well, (laughs) I'm, I'm here to tell you that perhaps not all new technology is perfect when it's created in the realm of complexity. Um, The the number one thing that that is the whole scale of complexity is that the world has gotten faster and faster and the number of items moving around the world has gotten greater and greater Mm -hmm. and the need for speed has gotten bigger and bigger. Uh, So that how do you how do you scale your business to doing that when it used to be, you know, a singular container, a couple of containers on a bill of lading, a singular declaration a couple of products on a purchase order. That was the world we used to live in. And that was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. But because of the supply chain concerns or because um, of bottlenecks or because data is faster um, and because in large part e-commerce, a lot of this is about the way people not only sh- shop online, not necessarily, you know, it's, so e-commerce is funny because it's, it's comprehensive. It's not just um, from someone's garage to someone's garage. 
it's, it's actually people are ordering online. They're expecting immediate results from that. They want it to show up exactly as they want it, when they want it. But to get to that level, um, there's a whole lot of complexity and scalability with that, right? And how do you manage an explosive number of things in the world aren't always just the explosive number of packages. Um, and as it relates to trade, the reason I'm saying this is that, you know, what used to be a fairly simple supply chain that was actually quite linear and the items to be concerned about are in a haystack that's much bigger. And a lot of the complexity comes from the rules and the regulations and the enforcement and all the, the stuff that's going on about that are geared toward now trying to find a singular bad actor in a group of things that are, you know, good. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I always talk about targeting in this area because it relates to all the data that's being amassed facilitation agreements, you know, the safe framework of standards. A lot of things have been done to facilitate trade that has resulted in goods clearing really, really quick, mm -hmm. but it's not unusual to have, you know, like multiple thousands of lines of items of data in a singular transaction today and trying to get to the one thing that's not perfect because, um, Although this is not public news, not everything is perfect in the world and it doesn't always <laughs> add up the right way. You heard it here first, folks. I know. I know. So and it took an expert to tell you this. <laughs> so um, because these pieces are not connected, they're not. You, your order doesn't match necessarily the invoice that you create in your system. And when goods are leaving a warehouse, it's as mundane as like the container doors shut, the seals made, and someone runs back to a terminal and goes, I think this is what was shipped. Now, hopefully <laughs> that stuff is automated, sure. but sometimes they make mistakes on that. Absolutely. You know, sometimes they left boxes behind and they thought that that order was actually shipped, but in fact it wasn't. So all of that goes into what a declaration is. And when that becomes automated and people are sending massive volumes of information because the, the entries are getting bigger and bigger. Um, there might be three things that are missing on that, or the value of it was wrong because they thought they had a certificate that claimed that it was free trade. It's just minutia, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that's a tax statement for a particular declaration. The government might say, and this goes into the targeting discussion. I, I want to see of the 16,000 lines of data. I want to see these three things. And they might say, I want to see the documents that support this. I want to see the trade preference certificate that supports that. And by the way, how do you know this was actually made in, you know, XYZ country? You have to stop what you're doing. And it's not automated at that, that point. You have to actually physically stop. You have to figure out where in the 16,000 lines of data, there might be an opportunity to get it more right next time. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. That's what I'm talking about. It's not fancy, but that's the work that really brokers do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then as things are moving through multiple countries, I mean, there's just so many hands involved in these processes, agreements, right? There has to be some kind of understanding, some mutual understanding between countries and such. Uh, has it grown in complexity at all? Oh, it has. It has. So um, it, and trade agreements have been and the granddaddy of it, you know, a long, long time ago was NAFTA. Well, that, mm -hmm. you know, started all sorts of modern trade agreements. It wasn't the initial trade agreement by any stretch, but it was a more modern version of one. And obviously, recently, it, it now NAFTA is known as USMCA. But um, the idea is what was once, you know, stable and set. Um, 
is now changing quickly. Trade agreements are, were becoming more and more complex because there's more and more countries that want preferential treatment. And, and I'm not going to get into the political world of it, but sure, not sure. all countries see eye to eye. I right. know that's, again, a newsflash. <laughs> but um, in the customs realm, as an example, they're there to protect the borders according to the sovereignty and the regulations and rules and the interests of those countries they represent. They don't create the regulations, really. They're there to enforce the regulations that are there to protect whatever the interests of that country are. So trade agreements are obviously meant to produce um, uh, a financial um, viability and a growth pattern between countries that say we should work together to build trade up between our two nations. And in doing that, we're going to offer preferential treatment. So maybe lower rates of duty or no quotas for that particular item or the ability to enter a market with market access. So all of that is the positive side of trade agreements. The negative side of trade agreements are that it doesn't include everybody. It doesn't mm -hmm. include every item. It's not open to all individuals. It opens companies up to audit. And in the past, there were lots of talk, you know, in the TPP um, or the various trade agreements out there that were multilateral, that that was sort of becoming a more common theme four years ago. What's happened progressively over the last really four years is that these are becoming more um, bilateral trade agreements. And this is, again, as a representative of not global, but the, the interests of the U.S. Um, or other countries, there are actually multi-country agreements that they're still in play. Yeah. But if you look at, um, as an example, Brexit, you have uh, some agreements that are now bi bilateral. Then you have multi-country agreements to protect, you know, what was a zero rate of duty when it was all one region, and now it's, you know, the European Union and the UK, right? Mm -hmm. As an example. So um, it's just, and none, none of these agreements are identical to the next. So it's a bit like a snowflake. And so even though you might know the rules of origin or the particular parameters of valuation or labor costs, you may not know that for every country, for every agreement. And so you really have to have good legal counsel, good financial records. You have to have good supply chain, you know, sourcing profiles, you have to know your bill of materials in order to comply. So I always say that, you know, free trade is actually a misnomer because there's nothing, nothing cost free about trade agreements, you know, it's just, <laughs> but the benefit, if you're really good at it, or you have a stable supply chain, people can save enormous amounts of money by taking advantage in a, in a proper way on, on the various trade agreements out there. Uh, next up, you had geopolitical environmental issues. Um, we already talked about uh, Brexit a little bit, but we're looking at um, sanctions and pandemics. And could you start with that? Sure. So, and I did mention Brexit, but this is indicative of where the world is going. And I'm not necessarily saying countries or states are going to splinter apart, but there's definitely um, in this world a movement toward regionalization or localization or sourcing domestically or supporting domestic environments. There's been a shift back from globalism to localism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more a sign of what's to come. It's not to say I don't have a crystal ball and it's yeah. not a prediction of, you know, economic events, but Brexit was severe and unique in that, you know, it was nothing, nothing, nothing but talk. 
and people sort of lost sight that that actually may happen. And then all of a sudden it did, it, it already happened. <laughs> and then the date was on the calendar while we're busy trying to find containers in transit. And while freight is moving, you know, in, in a different way than it had in the past and the, in the constraints are enormous. Mm-hmm. These types of events are not stopping while freight is still sort of happening, right? So um, that geopolitical environment is as intense, if not more so, than it ever was. And again, there's lots of news, you know, like sanctions, you know, various countries being included in sanctions, and that's the new, um, it's a a financial tool, obviously, to control geopolitical um, relations between countries. Well, those sanctions are escalating, and those sanctions can potentially become even militaristic, quite frankly, that goes into the next section on security. But um, how that relates to trade is, again, these borders, the the, the um, border security, the, the uh, governments or the administrations within governments that are there to protect the borders have all these laws and that affects your supply chain and the, the, the buying and selling of goods. And so that's kind of what's continuing to happen. And the pandemic had some really positive impacts on maybe, you know, allowing goods to clear that, you know, for medical purposes or doing uh, digital signatures or virtual um, sort of audits. But what is sometimes happening in those countries where it was reliant on an individual shipment, an individual document, or a lot of physical presence at, at the time of content checks um, as the com- countries go back into what whatever the new normal is, it's even more complicated. And mm-hmm. that makes trade more complicated, too, because you might have a digital path on one hand one day and it might switch back to paper and signatures and, and you know, physical checks the next and virtually nothing changed other than they, they wanted. That's their way of enforcement. So it goes back and forward, I guess, depending on, you know, sort of what's happening in the, the world of health right now, too. Yeah, it's such a yeah, it's such an interesting interesting way to put that. Of like, I mean, yeah, through this pandemic, there have been some, I guess, realizations and uh, I guess uh, uh, identifying inefficiencies of why are we doing it this way? And like, let's get those digital signatures going. Let's automate this a little bit more. Let's digitize things. And and that's uh, that's definitely changing. But I imagine too that there's a level of adjustment to these kinds of things, and that can open up to some vulnerabilities. Could you talk a little bit about the security aspect of of customs and how that's being affected? Yeah, well, so there, there is the there's the actual risk, right? Of you know, hey, all this data is out there, and maybe we don't want all that data out there, and it yeah. becomes a cybersecurity risk, right? Or global data privacy. But um, there's also the positive that you know, in, again, technology doesn't solve all the problems; it uncovers the problems that existed and makes it more evident faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> uh, so. Um, it's not the risk is also in that whatever you think of as data, it's, you know, I think uh, in the past they thought because it was manual, it was slower or ineffective. What's happening because of all this data that's out there is that it's not because it was manual that there was a problem. There's effectively holes in the supply chain that are not to be masked now that it's not, <laughs> that it's digitized. And, and there's a risk. There is not, not, not just a risk of cybersecurity. There's a risk that it never existed in the first place. So mm. it just uncovers things that, you know, maybe not always traumatic, but it's there. And that kind of goes into why targeting comes into play because because there's so much data, it's much easier to spot when there isn't data to support mm. whatever it is. And so, or if you wanted to audit a particular thing, you know, the governments have access to 
hey, there's a security, there's a potential security risk or a manifest question, or, you know, they can do infrared exams that produce, like, I want to see that one particular thing. All this data uh, doesn't necessarily facilitate a supply chain's post-entry requirements or penalty situations. It actually increases the opportunity for enforcement post-border transaction, or if it's truly a security risk, meaning militaristic or, you know, things that are obviously of a big concern, yeah. uh, they can stop it before it even enters the border at the time that it hasn't even left origin yet. So there's just a, a lot more activity at the point of, I want to stop it before it does something bad to the citizens in my country. Yeah. I was going to ask like, who's doing the targeting and who's getting targeted. It's, it's, for that post-border enforcement, right? When things slip through the cracks or when it has to be addressed after the fact of, of goods clearing past borders, all this data allows for government entities or, or whomever to clear things up more or less. Is that is that what you're saying? It, it, as it relates to this topic, yes. From sure. a tricking standpoint, for sure, it allows them to specifically look at a specific item because they have the ability to now say, hey, over the last 18,000 shipments, you had XXX and now you have Y. Mm -hmm. Why on this one shipment do you have something different that would have been impossible in a manual environment? So they have access to that, you know, in, in far greater, you know, algorithms and, and, and data tables. The, but the other side of data and security is that everyone believes that, you know, if like out or offshoring becomes a big discussion point, you know, like mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of manufacturers or, you know, Providers of services use data centers and they have people typing away in various places because, again, data doesn't just happen by magic. It generally starts with someone doing something that then is recorded somewhere. Mm -hmm. When that is offshored or put in a place and it's transposed from really who owns it, the risk in the data from a security standpoint is that what you're looking at may not be the originator of that information. So you have governance discussions and all that. It's just, it, it, and as it relates to trade, it's it's not to make people crazy, but you can't take you can't trust things at face value, and you have the ability now to look for anomalies like never before. But more data is not always better, and it can actually add to the confusion. So all of this is like good, good, but bad if you take it to the extreme. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, okay, so now we're 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 talking about all this data. Um, I wanted to move on to this uh, this topic of innovation. And it sounds like a good thing, but why is it causing pressure in customs? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons. And again, it's all of these these things start out for good intent and good reasons. Um, and there's there's the but that's coming here. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, when people make really interesting products and they have really interesting solutions mm -hmm. in order to get that to the market, they have to test things. And there's no basis for that test. So um, there may not be a product that exists like that out in the universe. Sure. And it may, it may look really good and act really good in a control environment or test. But by the time it starts scaling, you realize that, wait, it wasn't intended to support this massive industrial use, as an example. Or, you know... Um, I have sourcing in this too, because, you know, as you're, as people are getting good about sourcing around the world, maybe because of trade wars or because there've been shifts in labor or yeah. there's shifts in, you know, COVID, quite frankly, you know, it's like, you have to rapidly be able to figure out or nearshoring events, you know, or regionalization, you have to quickly shift your supply chain to find other manufacturers of that 
And that is innovation too. So you might have a more unique product that's created in a place that had not been used to creating that product. Trying to find trends and patterns that were logical before um, are the, just the velocity and the dyna, dynamicism of that environment is shifting so quickly. And the other side of that is there's a lot of noise out there. So, you know, not all, again, innovation is like great until it gets proven. And not all things that are secure and old are better, though, either. So it's knowing when to pull in new stuff and knowing when to test things mm -hmm. without taking down the stable structure and having an infrastructure to do both. You know, and I think our customers, um, the industry, governments, they're all sort of trying to understand, like, as these flows are changing rapidly, how do you how do you not be asleep at the wheel? But how do you not adopt everything and actually destroy the things that are working? If that right, makes right, right. sense. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you not set this all on fire and try to keep this going? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff through artificial intelligence, machine learning, optical character recognition, robotic processes. All that stuff is amazingly important to test mm -hmm. and really producing some great thoughts and proofs of concepts, but. Um, there's a lot of noise in the industry too. And if you get too caught up in needing to jump on board, you know, again, not all digitization or digital processes mean that the processes themselves are better. It's the people, the knowledge and the process that have to be understood first before you overlay it with a digital solution. You keep bringing up, you know, that in order to get into this realm of digitization, uh, in order to get into this realm of automation, people have to start the process. This is very a people-dependent aspect of trade, uh, of shipping. Is that ever going away? Why, why are people so important to this? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that you, I mean, you may not need the same type of people doing the same type of activities, mm -hmm. but you can't get it to a point where you don't have knowledge and, and expertise because, um, uh, it's not that the world is so special that you can't figure out a way to automate or, or, or make processes efficient, but without people really understanding, like how do the laws and what's happening in the news become actual regulations that become declaration requirements, you know, that stuff doesn't happen overnight. And, mm -hmm. and you have to sort of um, be a student of the industry constantly, and you have to actually invest in that knowledge and people that measure productivity only in the matter of how many buttons can they push on a desk and call that like, that's all the people we need. Yeah, yeah. It erases like it's the brains within those bodies that are doing that work. And you can get brilliant people, but in the wrong jobs, you know, and, and if they don't really, they might understand how to program like crazy, but they don't understand like how much volume moves through supply chains and how many things are out there that you do need to combine practical boots on the ground operational expertise and how the regulations come to like where the rubber hits the road to a declaration as an example, that that value can't be shortchanged. And so I do absolutely believe that the knowledge is a really critical factor and it's not something that is one and done. It's a continuous process. Absolutely. Yeah. I, re I really like how you said that, you know, being students of the industry, you know, that's this constant learning to be done. Uh, and it does require that human touch. Um, what's 
as we cover these four kind of headaches, what's being learned from it and how are either trade authorities, uh, shippers, forwarders, carriers, how is everyone addressing all this rapid complexity that's happening right now? You know, um, that's a good question. I think people are coming at it from different angles and Mm -hmm. there's, there's a marketing aspect to it. There's a labor aspect to it. I mean, again, it's not divorced from the supply chain. There's only so many people out there that a want this kind of work or Mm -hmm. B uh, are knowledgeable enough to actually solve these pretty complex problems. And there was a time there that everyone thought everything was just going to be automated and overnight, we were all going to lose our jobs. And then, you know, the economy shifts or supply chain matters happen and really the the roots of it are supply and demand driven. You know, um, I I think the lessons can be learned is um, don't don't neglect the fact that, I mean, there are no crystal balls, but but um, you can read the newspapers. You can watch for what's happening in the regulations. You should never be asleep uh, by the quiet things that, that people aren't talking about as much anymore you should be more concerned that they weren't solved before and they haven't been solved yet. It will manifest itself again. So that's sort of my, um, what we can learn from it is um, don't, don't think that if you know something right now, that that knowledge will stay the same for literally ever. And that you do constantly have to um, take a, a look at what's going on, not only now, but how, people are behaving and what changes are coming down the, the, the path. And I think talking to, you know, figuring out what the priority issues are now is important, but figuring out what the priority issues, trade issues are going to be in the next five years. Mm-hmm. That's not something you should think about five years later. You should be thinking about yeah, right that. now. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And while folks should be focusing on things now, I guess, what should they be considering? What, what kind of change is coming? Well, I, I think the, as I mentioned, the world swung back to more enforcement um, mm-hmm. post-border. So things are clearing very quickly across borders. There's a whole lot of, um, you know, pressure in the e-commerce environment and just the way the world expects goods to move that, and, and just being able to be like a singular inspector looking at a singular shipment is not the way really borders should flow. Mm-hmm. But with all this data um, and with the governments being less trade friendly, quite frankly, they're more trade enforcement friendly. And and, <laughs> and trade enforcement is really the other side of trade facilitation. It's the same coin. It's just you can't have enforcement without facilitation and you can't truly facilitate legitimate trade if it's, if it's not transparent. So um, I, I think that with more and more countries that that enforcement is, is becoming even greater and, mm-hmm. and it will manifest itself in ex, a lot more export controls rather than, you know, in historically import was the big compliance concern. Export controls are a massive concern. I, I think that, you know, just because goods clear quickly doesn't mean there won't be penalties after the fact because customers sure. and other government agencies can take their time to figure out what didn't look perfect and they still have a lot of time to, you know, uh, do audits and and issue penalty notices, mm-hmm. and that everybody is evolving. So the more technology, the more innovation, all the things that we're talking about, that's not changing. It's actually becoming dramatically faster, mm-hmm. and the governments are changing their systems to adapt to the new environment, and you know, sourcing shifts, all the things that we're talking about. That's what is still coming. And there will be more laws coming to protect the shifts as they happen. So it's sort of like, just don't 
don't think this is just a supply and demand issue. All the stuff, the way you order and who you buy from and who you sell to, governments are watching and in a good way because they're trying to protect your life too. Sure, sure. You know, it's it's going to result in in, in shifting priorities, but definitely more enforcement right now. Yeah. And, yeah. and the one thing I didn't ma- mention, and I think it is important, um, you know, there are a lot of activities about forced labor these days too. Yes. And, and that is about, you know, like making sure that goods are produced with labor that is not coerced. And on one hand, it's obviously incredibly positive that people want to prevent that. But the net that is being cast on that subject right now, um, they're trying to weed out bad actors doing bad things. And um, some uh, highly transparent and legitimate supply chains are getting called into question because you may not know exactly what the root of that particular raw material is and that may actually come from things that are, are, you know, where forced labor is used. So that net is getting cast broader and broader in a couple of countries, more than more than one country, several countries. Mm-hmm. And that's something to watch for because that's something that is not going to go away. Okay, so this kind of brings me to my last question here. Um, as I look back on this discussion and and ones that I've had in the past and previous episodes, there's a sense that attention to logistics and supply chains is making its way up the leadership ladder uh, up to the C-suite, right? Um, These executives are paying attention to what is going on in logistics. What would you say is important for someone to know or for them to understand or convey to executives when it comes to customs and trying to get more space at the at the planning table? Ooh, that's a good question. And and I have to say that my opinion of it is that people are very focused on the here and now. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what gets landed in the C-suite is generally either the strategic vision of the company for the future, or what is the biggest pain point right now? And why are we not making money? Or why are our customers not getting product? Or, you right, know, right. those kinds of things. And I would say that um, as part of trade, Um, opportunities are missed when, again, you know, you look at it only in like, what is the disruption that should land on the CEO's desk? That's not a well-planned activity, right? Mm. Like organizations that only look at what is causing me pain right now, or they have a procurement cycle that means I have to go to bid every year and I'm going to choose a new player in this market based off of the lowest cost for this one particular portion of my business. Mm -hmm. You're missing a valuable opportunity to say, you know, integrating with a partner who actually has a comprehensive reach in knowledge and uh, can be flexible and offer some advice that's not unilateral based off of a grid on a on an RFP or on a <laughs> procurement checklist, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not to sneeze at those requirements because they keep companies organized and very much in line with, this is what I want and this is what you should give me. But that being said, a responsible company that really is looking to lower their overall cost or improve their margins or stay ahead of their industry mm-hmm. really needs to work with world-class providers and not just one, obviously, of mm-hmm. course we love it, but we're all just us, but, <laughs> sure. but knowing who those knowledgeable experts are and really working in a collaborative long-term partnership is sometimes contrary to procurement cycles. So my 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 um, ask is that you know in the things that land on the C-suite shouldn't just be about the immediate problem that's causing the immediate pain. It should be mm-hmm. how do we plan for the future to continue to grow as partners, and how do we understand what the risks are ahead of us or the opportunities more importantly, yeah. and work together as partners. That that's what I would advocate. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dana Lorenz, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know that we're kind of coming close uh, at the end here. If folks wanted to get into touch with you to, to talk more about this, to learn more, uh, where can they find you? So my email address is just the first name dot last name at expediters.com. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'll have them in the notes. Uh, yeah, all of our regional uh, directors can help. We have a, a, a team of folks in, in our offices that can also field um, some questions, but they they can always reach out to me too. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to engage in conversation. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I learned a lot today and I'm sure uh, folks listening did as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And it was nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've got questions or want to learn more about today's topic, check out the show notes for more information. And before you go, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using so you won't miss the next episode. To learn more about Expediters, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or simply visit us at expediters.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time.